Welcome once again to Benchworld, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at AC Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund an Associate Professor for Entrepreneurial Finance and Venture Capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Thank you everyone for being today with us. Today, we have a conversation with Richard Schwartz. Thank you very much, Richard, for being available to have this conversation. He has a, a PhD, he's an entrepreneur, and he has a lot of experience. So thank you, Richard, for, for being available today with us. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Hector. No, I'm very glad to be with everyone. Good to meet everybody virtually. No, thank you. So first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. So um, I grew up in Southern California. I live in Austin, Texas now. Grew up in Southern California. Um, got uh, a PhD at UCLA in computer science, actually computer science and mathematics. Uh, enjoyed that period very much. And then um, I was a, um, a professor for one year after my PhD in Israel. I discovered I liked doing research um, uh, and, and I ended up going to Stanford Research Institute uh, in the, the Bay Area of California. And I was a researcher for about five years in um, uh, artificial intelligence and computer systems um, for formal methods. So areas of early AI. And I accidentally became a, an entrepreneur, actually. I was working um, with a colleague there. We were writing papers and developing systems and getting government grants. And there was a, a delay of about nine months uh, in one of the government, US government grants coming through. So uh, Rob Shostak and I kind of, you know, got a little bit bored and it, um, we decided to start working on a, some software uh, on the side and we worked evenings and weekends for a number of years, um, kidding ourselves, thinking that it was gonna be a very short project that just kept getting bigger and bigger and longer and longer. And actually that turned into our leaving uh, SRI, getting venture capital and forming, uh, forming our first company, uh, which was a database, uh, a database company using some of our AI actually in its core. Um, we, we merged in the early days of another company called Borland International, uh, also in the Bay Area. And then I was the chief technology officer there during the, the strong growth years. Um, and, you know, once I started uh, uh, doing companies and frankly, 
seeing that you create a product and it really matters, uh, um, it's kind of addictive. So I've done it several times since then. I uh, started a, another company um, in the Bay Area, um, which was uh, early customer relationship management. I sold that to another company in Austin, actually, called uh, Vignette, uh, where I ran strategy and technology. And then um, left and did another company uh, called Solomio in Austin, uh, which was in the early pioneering area of uh, mobile applications uh, and converged voice and data. We sold that to OpenWave back in California. Again, big company, and I ran kind of strategy, technology, and mergers and acquisition. Repeat story, uh, I, I left and started another company uh, called Machine, which was in the early Internet of Things and kind of machine to machine. Um, we sold that to um, uh, a company, again, back in California, uh, called Good Technology, which itself was sold to BlackBerry. And I ran cloud and telco uh, cloud services there until then. So I, I kind of, uh, Hector, have some kind of background on the professional side, which is uh, creating new companies, growing them to a certain point getting them acquired, playing a role in the larger company, um, and then leaving and doing it again. And I've kind of got the bug. I'm a serial offender for doing that in a kind of way. Oh, Maybe okay. the only other thing uh, about me is I'm a winemaker and a grape grower, and that's my counterbalance to, uh, to high science. It's really touching things and, and growing and making wine, and that's my counterbalance. <laughs> Well, that's that's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Richard. So, uh, and recent Horowitz, this global VC fund, says that software is eating the world. So, what are those key technologies driving the change? Yeah. So that was Mark Andreessen, um, uh, Hector. Of course, uh, about a decade ago, I, I worked with. Um, with Mark, when he was doing Netscape, I was doing my second company and we partnered in the market. Um, he's, a, he's a good guy and the, the statement was very far reaching. The way I interpret, first of all, uh, what was meant by that, and then let's talk about what are the parts of it. Saying that software would eat the world, software was a very physical way to say it. It was really that software programming in a certain sense was going to make the change. And, and it's true and it's happened, but there've been a set of other things which are technology and society changes, I think, which are continuing to be very fundamental in transforming society. One of them was software as a service or the notion that instead of running applications that were locally and yours on your computer, kind of moving back into the cloud and delivering software or more fundamentally services that integrate into what you do and how you do it. So the kind of as a service was very fundamental for that. One of the other pieces is um, data as a service or kind of thinking less about how something was done 
and thinking instead about the output, what are you consuming from it? And what do you do with it? Which is start of a climb back toward the customer's problem and how you integrate the result of computing into a transformation in the way you do it. And maybe one more bit and then I'll stop. I think um, fundamentally the software is eating the world is soft is eating the world of hard. It's really breaking through the, the barriers, breaking through what people think of as the physical world and physical interaction and physical interfaces, hard interfaces and knobs and controls into more of a, a virtual or soft interface and soft interaction and soft collaboration. And in some sense, that is the basic transformation that's going on. And there are a lot of different technologies that all kind of fit around that and challenge us, frankly. Uh, absolutely. And today we have plenty of technologies. We cannot think of any startup, any new business that doesn't have embedded technology. So all of those business, they do have technology in order to be successful. So what, what would you say are those key technologies that you are seeing up and coming in the market today? So um, first of all, um, at least from my vantage point, the trick is always what are the technologies and what are the market drivers, the market disruptions? And, and you wanna kind of look for something kind of bottom up where the technology can make a difference, but also where there are some um, pressures in society or reasons why there are transformations or disruptions and then combine them. I think um, broadly speaking, really broadly speaking, artificial intelligence or areas of training computers to do things that historically people have needed to do is a big broad brush bucket of technologies, Hector, that, that are part of the making the difference. I think, um, you know, back to the soft is eating hard, the, the, the whole area of virtual collaboration, virtual interaction. So things like we're doing right now um, for learning, for business interaction, for developing um, collaboration technologies that try to break the boundary of physical uh, is a key area of transformation. The other one the other one is um, this whole um, this whole business of um, uh, taking the assumptions for what in other areas people are used to doing in a uh, in an in an old way or a traditional way, and looking for ways of streamlining that. It could be workflow. It could be automation in a certain sense. It could be more data and transformation 
It's kind of taking what we learn, we've all learned and grown up in the virtual world or the online world and applying it to the physical world. And there are a lot of different technologies and bits and pieces around that. And all of those in different ways are transformational technologies that get matched up with fundamental changes, slow fundamental changes in how we live, how we work, and how we create. So for instance, for anyone that is trying to become an entrepreneur at some point in time, you mentioned artificial intelligence, virtual collaboration, and, and we can find many other technologies in the marketplace. So as, as we review investment opportunities, we identify artificial intelligence and machine learning, one of the top technologies in the marketplace. So how would you describe those two technologies for someone that doesn't have the technological background? And how would you be able to apply those two technologies in any opportunity? So, first of all, I, I think it's critical this sort of push-pull or combining technology innovation with market need. And, you know, the, at least from my standpoint, the trick is looking at both simultaneously as an entrepreneur. So you can't just say, this is cool technology or transformational technology without being able in as narrow a way as possible to say, here's the use case, here's the problem, here's the pain. Let me use technology to make, you know, uh, you, you guys all know this, um, more than an incremental change. When, when you're thinking from an entrepreneur or you're gonna do a new company, you better be more than a little bit better than the other large companies that are out there. Because momentum and friction stop new companies from doing something unless, you know, it really is, 10x better or 100x better or allowing a radical different community of people to do something that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And so it's this disruptive market receptiveness together with a technology that literally breaks the rules, but then very narrowly, almost surgically, finding a, a use case, a business problem, um, a business model that can work with it so that you don't need to boil the ocean or get somebody to wholesale disrupt um, think. And the way that I approach that, and maybe Hector, this is another kind of answer. Every degree of change is expensive and slower than anybody expects. So the question is, how many degrees of change, how many independent factors need to line up to open up the market opportunity? And if there are too many degrees of change or too many things that need to be true in the future, then it may be radically disruptive, but won't happen. And so it's this combination as an entrepreneur of really different in the way you do it, 
radically different in the value proposition, but not so different in the way people need to, you know, embrace or integrate into their workflow in order to actually make it happen. Otherwise, you're too early or too late. And how do you know that, first of all, how do you identify a problem? And second, how do you know that, you know, X or Y technology fits the solution for that problem? It's, first of all, it's a, it's a hard problem and it's a good question, full stop. Um, I think, you know, it's funny. And again, I'm going to give an odd balance to an answer. Okay. Um, I, I've done this enough times. I, I have enough scars on my back. Um, so one thing that is kind of important, on one hand, really getting into the space, really watching in any area, whether it's e-commerce or robotics or AI or FinTech or, you know, retail tech, any of these really getting in and watch how people do things today. Listen to them in how they explain what they do, uh, how they explain what's hard for them. Um, look at, at the other products in the market and kind of think carefully about it. So that's a kind of market analysis and market research. But here's the other side of that. Most people can't tell you what they actually need. They can only tell you what they want. And what they want is going to be shaped by what they know and incremental small changes from that. So you kind of can't just build or do what they say. They may not want it when they ultimately see it, or it may be doing things that are too close to what the large existing companies can do. So it's kind of really early and really often get in there and really touch the problem, the market, the existing activities test your assumptions don't go dark for too long and you know just do something on your own but then build and trust your own intuition for what will make a bigger difference than what you're hearing and in some cases don't most cases don't do what you hear is the conventional wisdom it's probably too late for exactly that but it's a good indication of where there's a, where there's heat, where there's a need for change, or even that the market factors are ripe for some different approach. And there's no substitute for getting close to that, but not doing what's close to what you hear or see, if that makes sense. Okay, no, that sounds that sounds perfect. Obviously. You need to hear the market, you need to understand the key drivers, and you need to plug in with the right technology. And, and at the very beginning, you have been, you've been an entrepreneur for many, many years, very successful. And right now you are doing another entrepreneur, another project named Pensa. So as an entrepreneur, 
how do you start? What would you say are the key elements in order to make the first step and start building a business? How do you frame the business? So um, one of the approaches, and I've refined this um, each time uh, I've approached it. And, you know, it's funny, I, you know, I said I, I started companies, I grew them, I sold them. And then in every case, I was an executive of a larger one. In the larger ones, I've also attacked the same problem, which is how do larger companies innovate? How do you treat larger companies like startups? How do you protect new ideas and new groups of people? Or if you acquire startups, how do you integrate them to bring in the very benefit that you've acquired them without smothering them? And in all of these cases, the, the new ideas and the new companies are very fragile. Um, it's easy to develop friction and antibodies to stop the success or to argue yourself into why something won't work. And some of it is suspending the disbelief. Some cases, um, and again, I've done this kind of multiple times, if you can define in a concrete way the product that you envision, concretely don't build it yet maybe wireframe it or build the soft interface in a uh, a web a pure web front end something with no back end or build it um, and assume the ai or the automation behind it but project it to what the customer sees and what the value is and test it before you go deep in building it for real. And then build it iteratively. You know, everybody talks about the minimum viable product and so forth. It's actually, for me, it's even more layered than that. You know, it's kind of like don't invest too deeply in something before you know it's going to matter. And then build it up with a powerful framework, but not fully fleshed out and test that. Maybe build more inside in, in, a, in a way that's not fully automated and then see what works and see where people are having problems. And then take another step and start to solve some of those problems and invest in that and sort of pace what you're doing and what you're thinking with what you're learning in the market or with you know beta customers or early whatever and then grow in layers and then align the layers with the venture capital um, at each point so that you know you know what your next level of growth is what your next milestone is and then back into what you need to build or what you need to prove to get to the next milestone not the one five years after but the next one and you sort of pace and learn and grow in a, in a stepwise thing. It's, it's more efficient uh, from a cash standpoint, a resource and productivity standpoint, and you don't go too far ahead of what you've actually proven at each point, if that makes sense. Okay. 
And as you build the company, as you build your product or service, how relevant is to understand the customer journey uh, and how relevant is to think about the user experience and the user interface? First of all, very relevant uh, in all cases. It may be more or less the core relevance, depending on the nature of the product. Is the product more of a, a business to consumer product? Is it a business to business product? Is it a, a fundamental AI or learning product that essentially automates behind the scenes? How much of the, the user presentation is the value versus the smarts or the automation behind it? In all cases, what it touches, what it needs to integrate with, where it gets its data from, or in, in our case, its rules from, is very important because one of the things is that you can have the best product in the world in terms of um, how you can solve the problem, but if you need too much in the way of the customer telling you endless inputs or deep integrations and APIs into systems that are too expensive or the setup time becomes um, too onerous, then you end up with something that could be great, but nobody will use it or it can't scale in the market. So customer experience thought of very broadly as the interface points and the assumptions about what's needed to begin to deliver the value or to unlock the value at scale. One other point, um, and again, this is either really important or obvious, delighting the customer, something where really early on some early value some early insight, early thing about the experience, early thing about how smart it is in one case, something early on that creates enthusiasm and delight can carry massively far through, even when other things are too hard and need to get easier and you know so forth. The ability to inspire the customer with what something can be for over time, that part of the journey, as you called it, Hector, that part of the journey is fundamentally important because the customer then buys into it with you and helps you make it better over time and is more patient because of the original spark behind it. So getting that and figuring out what that is, is really, really, really important and hard, but critical. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's essential as you build the, as you build the company. And when is the right timing to monetize? Because typically as an investor, you see projects, you see projects that they may not generate any money. They are building networks. And they expect to monetize in, you know, in the in the medium future. So as an entrepreneur, when is the right time to really monetize? Yeah, again, hard question. And the 
industry swings from um, one extreme to the other, right? There were periods of time where if you could um, prove that you could get eyeballs, people downloading the whatever, then nobody worried about, you know, how you'd make money from it. They just assumed you could. And there were companies that went public on the promise of a, a million eyeballs with no business model. And then the industry swung to the opposite extreme. You've got to be profitable. You need to, you need to have uh, proven your late stage in order to get seed capital, which of course isn't real either. Somewhere in the middle is probably the, the, the right answer, uh, Hector. And it's more like, look, don't just be blind to how you think you're going to monetize it or what your business model is. Be cognizant of that while you're also building the value and looking for that loyalty, looking for the growth in users and test somewhere along the way whether people are willing to pay for it. And by the way, who's willing to pay for it? Is it the customer? Is it a partner? Is it a commercial vendor? There are different, different sources of monetization. And actually you may learn something along the way that it's better not to charge the end customer but charge the other people that care or affiliate marketing or many other business models and kind of figuring out somewhere early, at least what you think the answer is and start to prove some of that while you're also proving that there's some scale or scope. Because if you don't get some amount of scale and scope, it doesn't matter, you can't monetize it at a large enough scale to matter anyway. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But at the end, the investors, as you point out, they swing and, and today they are looking more for profitable business models rather than just eyeballs in, in the near term or in the medium term. So can you share with us a little bit about how you, how you mix the technology and what are you doing at Pensa? Yeah, Pensa uh, is an interesting case, um, Hector, of what we were just talking about. Um, we put together two observations, one about technology and one about market. Um, on the technology side, there were flavors of artificial intelligence and robotics, um, deep learning, neural networks, uh, that were just starting in research to demonstrate that they could be more reliable and more trustworthy. Robotics also um, were starting to be used more in some areas like um, the orange uh, robot Kiva systems that became um, Amazon robotics. So robotics, and control were growing up a little bit, kind of out of the internet of things, sort of moving around by itself. AI was starting to have more predictability to it. And on, on the technology side, we started saying, what can we do for using 
computers to take on problems that are very people intensive and very eyeball intensive. And that's perception and cognition from a technology or AI standpoint. We married it up with a simple observation in retail. Just think about, you know, your local grocery store or drugstore, pharmacy. It's very hard to know what's actually on the shelf. If you work there or you're one of the manufacturers supplying it, there's actually no system of record, no database that actually tells you what's on the shelf and available for sale. It's very people intensive, very eyeball intensive. People literally walk around and stare at the shelf and try to see not what's there, but what's missing. Not what's there, but what's missing. But all you can see is what's there. How do you conclude what's missing? Well, that's actually something computers can be good at. And it's very hard for people and very tedious because you kind of only see what's there and some of the things are the wrong things and some of the products are in the wrong place. And there's an immediate business model for that problem, which is very eyeball intensive and tedious and inaccurate. If you can figure out what's missing or what's out of stock and help the retailer and the manufacturer kind of get it more on the shelf, it sells more and there's an immediate revenue lift. So we put together a new area of technology to solve a problem that was painful and inaccurate and expensive with an immediate business problem with an ROI return on investment, which was really clear if you could find a way to automate it. So we automated it and we applied it to the problem and we did it in a business model that would open it up at scale without having too many assumptions about really hard to integrate, needing too much data to get started and so forth. And that's Pensa and that's what we do, which is automated perception in retail inventory solving the problem of reducing stockouts, learning automatically what's on the shelf, in effect, digitizing the real world, the physical shelf, and then using that to reach conclusions about a core business problem, what's out of stock and how do I fix it? And in a, in a nutshell, that, that's what we do. Oh, that's amazing. It's, it's something that any CPG it's looking in, in any geography today. And, and, and that's, that's wonderful. So what would you say, Richard, are those disruptions that will come in the market in the next coming years? What will be your, your final takeaway as terms of, in terms of technologies and next disruptions? Well, we're living one right now, which is COVID. And the way we're interacting right now, we're not together in the same room, but we're trying to have a virtual interaction and a virtual conversation. We're living one in the way we work where all of a sudden we can hire people and work with people that are anywhere in the world. You're in one together, which is teaching and learning is transformed. 
At the same time, automation and having computers take on things that are not safe for people to do or improve something like, you know, e-commerce and less physical shopping and more online shopping or online shopping and picking up in the store. This sort of soft meets hard or automating the physical world, making it more online, but more productive online. I mean, whether that's collaboration and interaction or learning or automation or augmented reality, finding ways to essentially take what you see and smarten it up help you do something better or faster in a more informed way by kind of superimposing extra information, data, to help you do something better. Those are fundamental areas right now that are frankly, actually maybe five years, could be as much as 10 years, accelerated in disruption and transformation because of absolute need and on a global level. That's a huge change, a huge change in the areas we're talking about that frankly wouldn't have happened uh, in this kind of way with a consolidation of factors driving change and disruption. That is the opportunity for creating something new and injecting it into the world, into business or society, you know? Absolutely. Interesting times, interesting times. They were the ones that we're living today. Richard Schwartz, founder of Pensa. <laughs> Thank you very much for being today with us. Thank you, Hector. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>